Hi, welcome to Witch Witches Witch, a pop culture podcast about ladies who use magic. I'm Derek. And I'm Regina. It's Thanksgiving in the United States, and that's usually a time when we are thinking about what we're thankful for, what we're grateful for. But the witches that we're talking about today, they aren't grateful. They want vengeance. So Regina, tell us, which vengeful witch are you talking about today? Well, it's actually witch plural, witches. Witches. Yes, witches. Four of them from the cult movie classic of the 90s, The Craft, which is largely responsible to my mind for why most women around my age are into or have been into some form of Wicca, Earth Spirit religion, witchcraft, women-centric religion of some kind. It follows four teenage girls, Sarah, Bonnie, Rochelle, and Nancy, who form a coven. The main character is Sarah, who is new to town and a quote-unquote natural-born witch. Once the girls come together and start practicing magic together, they abuse their powers and they have to deal with the consequences. But part of that power abuse comes in the form of vengeance. Do you guys worship the devil? (laughs) It's like God and the devil. I mean, it's everything. It's, it's the trees, it's the ground, it's the rocks, it's the moon, it's everything. It's nature. If God and the devil were playing football, Manol would be the stadium that they played on. It would be the sun that shone down on them. Yeah, the craft, as far as I recall, granted it's been 10 or 15 years since the last time I saw it, but I remember it being a really big deal for our generation and, of course, it introduced that really weird cover of The Smiths' How Soon Is Now that was then reused for Charmed, which was a TV show about witches. Yes. So yeah. the first law of witchiness is that the witch in question be female. Are the four main characters in the craft female? Yes, they all identify as female. And Bonnie in particular is overly concerned with traditional female beauty standards, which becomes her problematic consequence later in the movie. They cast spells to remove scarring from her body, and then she becomes a kind of Jezebel cautionary tale, but I'll speak to more of that later. Okay, sweet. The second law of witchiness is that they practice magic. So this coven you're describing in the craft, how do they practice magic? What sort of magic do they do? This movie is one of the most detailed magic practice heavy films that I've seen. The rites that they perform are explored in detail and they explain a lot of what they're doing and why. What's interesting to me is when I was doing research for the show, there's a technical advisor on the film who was actually a Dianic Wiccan and she helped to develop all of the magic practices that you see in the film so they have a real feeling of authenticity for anyone who is familiar with Wicca, Wiccan practices, they all kind of really ring true and are really sensitive to how those practices are done. The most poignant scenes of magic in the film for me are the ritual to Mano, who is not a real deity. Mano was created by the technical advisor in the film to be 
a completely made up deity because the technical advisor was like, I don't want a bunch of teenage kids going out into the woods and invoking a real god. Like that would be really terrible. So I'm going to make up this Mano and that's who these girls are going to be aligned with in the film. But after this movie came out, there were all of these books and all this literature that came out describing Mano as a real god. And that's just not true. However, there's a lot of instances in occult history of that kind of telephone game of occultism that is responsible for a lot of current occult beliefs. Like the tarot started out as uh, just a card game and one person a long time ago decided that it could be used as a form of divination and started the cartomancy thing. And now we just assume that tarot has this inherent power, but really it was just somebody who was like, hey, this probably could do this. And now everybody just bought into it. Same thing. It was just someone who took a card game really seriously? Yes. Like what would happen if we had a whole religion form out of Uno? I was thinking of Magic the Gathering, but Uno is much better. I mean, Magic the Gathering, depending on who you talk to, is its own religion. Yes. But... All of that is a huge tangent to say that the ritual to Mano is one of my favorite scenes of magic in this film. And then the second one is when Sarah binds Nancy. I bind you, Nancy, from doing harm. Harm against other people and harm against yourself. Wait. I bind you, Nancy, from doing harm. Harm against other people and harm against yourself. Wait. I bind you, Nancy, from doing harm. Harm against other people and harm against yourself. I bind you, Nancy. Yeah, I always love when they have experts to bring that sort of authenticity to narratives and fiction. My, my favorite examples are on Game of Thrones, they actually have a professional linguist who comes up with all the Dothraki language. When they first started shooting the show, they knew they wanted to have the whole wedding scene with a lot of Dothraki language. But in the book, it was all done via narration. And they talked to George R.R. Martin and they were like, oh, can you write more dialogue for this? And he goes, literally all I've written of the language is what's in this book. There's nothing else. And they brought in a professional linguist to do the rest. And they've actually written books of like the Dothraki language based on his research in language and the books. And also on Avatar The Last Airbender, they had the four different societies of bending, you know, earth, wind, fire, water. And those were based on four different types of Eastern martial arts. They had four different like senseis come in and do all sorts of motion capture work for all the different motions of like their particular art form. And each of the four types of bending were based on those. So you can tell from the movements that they're doing different types of magic. I love that. I love it when things in pop culture are able to do that kind of deep dive because it creates a different kind of magic, not the magic that we're talking about, but a kind of depth and interest around the world building that makes these stories come alive in a way that I don't think they could otherwise. I'm thinking also of like the Klingon language oh, that yeah. has been explored and developed really intensely and the fact that there are several elven dialects from the Lord of the Rings that yeah. you're able to get deep into if you want because Tolkien was a linguist himself and that's super cool. So should you, when you're practicing your magic at home, decide you need a little Elvish or Klingon or something to spice up your right, you can totally do that. And that's amazing. 
Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we also have Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. You know, when they gave the script for the movie to Vin Diesel, he had an exclusive one that just was, I am Groot for every line, but in parentheses, what it was supposed to say. So he knew how to express those I am Groots. And nobody else got that script. I did not know that. So anyway, um, moving on to the third law of witchiness. How do the witches in the craft demonstrate feminism? Holy wow, this is a loaded question. Frankly, I'm going to say that they do not practice feminism. These are not feminist witches. And you can start sending me your hate mail now. I can feel it rolling in. Do it. We are at witchwitchcast at gmail.com. Address them to Regina because she is anti-feminist, apparently, this episode. I don't know. No, I'm not anti-feminist, but the ladies of the craft are. And I, I feel like this is a controversial thing to say because, like I said, so many women my age grew up with the craft and there's this feeling of girl power around it. There's this feeling of girl power when you watch the craft, but... When you start to really look at what happens in this film, you'll realize that these girls aren't feminist and there are a lot of really problematic things happening. This is the story of an affluent white girl who moves to town and doesn't fit in, joining a group of friends who are a white lower class girl who dreams of money and power, a girl with scars who dreams of being the beauty norm, and the lone black girl at school who deals with racism at the locker room. These girls use their power to gain their desires, which boil down to, for the main character, from let me fit in to let me get this guy that I want. So in the movie, she goes on this terrible date. I think it's terrible. She somehow thinks it's good, where he examines the sizes of women's heads. Then, the next day, he's told the entire school that they had sex, even though they didn't. Her retribution, her vengeance, is that she casts a love spell on him. What?! The love spell makes him carry her books and stuff, which becomes vengeance because it effectively shames him in front of his friends, which I guess is fine, but sure. it also just reinforces the stereotype that women are one-time use only sex objects mm. and being nice to them in public is tantamount to shame. That's problematic. Then, dear listeners, rape culture invades and her spell to make him love her causes him to try to rape her. Ah. It's classic she was asking for it logic. Oh my she God. gets away without magic. Again, what? Use your magic for something good like avoiding your rapist? And then to punish him, Nancy who is played by Fariza Balkan, who is awesome, decides her vengeance against him is to seduce him. This is really bad. I guess seducing someone disguised as someone else and then going, ha-ha, it's me, Nancy, instead, is a good punishment. And then he apologizes in a way that is almost really heartfelt and, and could be a new beginning for this whole crazy scenario and then nancy kills him through defenestration she floats up on her scary boots and tosses him out the window this is so problematic i am speechless so this is classic misogynist fear of what feminists are like i'm not gonna apologize to her she wouldn't appreciate it anyway the girls in general are also weirdly obsessed with looks and the beauty standard. Sarah is in love with a total idiot who is easy on the eyes. And the three other girls all use some sort of beauty or ugliness spell for themselves or as curses. 
I'm thinking of um, Rochelle, who's the one who's dealing with racism, casts a spell on the racist white girl to make her go bald, which is kind of a great use of her power in my mind. I think that was a great curse, like more power to you. But then she starts to feel bad about it, which I think undermines everything that's going on with her because she could have been the most poignant and interesting character in the film. But the fact that she kind of backpedals on the vengeance towards her racist aggressor makes the whole thing kind of go ugh in my mind. Yeah. And then Bonnie uses her magic to make herself beautiful. And then when she does, she starts wearing all this revealing clothing and starts getting sexually aggressive, which I mean, fine, I'm for that. Being sexually aggressive doesn't make you less feminist. But when she starts to get concerned that the beauty spell that she has worked is fading and that her scars are coming back, she freaks out. In the end, the poor girl, the vain girl, and the black girl are all set to rights by the rich white girl with the inherent powers. Yikes. Sorry, ladies, you should have spent way more time in women's studies class at high school and less time in the magic shop because you had every opportunity to do something really cool and really feminist, but no. Yeah, I clearly have not thought about this movie hard enough because all of that is very troubling. I I didn't either. When When I was going back to this film, I was so ready to feel like girl power and inspired like yeah the craft like I rented this movie this is this is how old the movie is and I am I rented this movie from the video store like a hundred times I could have bought it and as I'm watching it and I'm watching all of this stuff unfold and how super problematic it was it was super disappointing but I'm always of the mind that it's okay to love problematic things as long as you can see where the problems are. And clearly, the problems in this film have to do with the feminism, or lack thereof. Okay, moving on to a lighter note, the fourth rule of witchiness is coming from a place of misunderstanding or persecution. (laughs) So much lighter than feminism. Wow. Right. Um, Can you tell me if and how the ladies in the craft are persecuted or misunderstood? They they are. You know, this film, I think, is the 1990s teen girl rally cry for being persecuted and misunderstood. The quintessential scene for this is... Girls, watch out for those weirdos. (laughs) We are the weirdos, mister. They're all misunderstood in their own ways. Before Sarah joins and finishes the coven, the other girls are all labeled as outcasts and thought of as witches by the other students in the school, which is true, but causes them to be not befriended by anyone else who's there. You've got the lower class, lower income girl, Nancy. You have the only or seemingly only black girl at the school, Rochelle, and Bonnie, who is struggling with the visible scarring on her body that make people not like her, I guess. And then the interesting thing in the end is that Sarah becomes persecuted by the other girls in the cavern for not wanting to go down their quote-unquote evil path, which leads Nancy to go out of control and later out of her mind. The craft always struck me as sort of like the 90s goth version of Heathers, which is amusing to me because Heathers is already a pretty goth movie, if you think about it. Yes, and I I haven't seen the Heathers in a while, but I think that the feminism in the Heathers is probably a little 
has a little bit more to offer than this film. So yeah. Yeah, at least at least in that one, Christian Slater gets put in his place by the end. Yeah. And the fifth and final rule of witchiness is that the witch in question be bonded to a sentience larger than themselves. Are the ladies in the craft bonded to a sentience of some sort? Yes, their fictional sentience mana governs their powers or is part of the power dynamic that they explore with their magic. And I spoke a little bit about mana already and how mana is a, a made-up deity. There is uh, a case to be made for another, I believe it's Celtic deity, uh, that has a similar name. It's Menono or something that deity governs the sea and the air, which is interesting because it calls back to the scene where they're invoking the spirit on the beach and all the stuff rains down. So they are bonded to this sentience. This film shows Wiccan religious practices in a way that is very sensitive to what those rites are actually like. And I think that the girls really have a deep connection to this sentience. Although, towards the end, when Nancy is obsessed with invoking the spirit and gaining more power and more power and more power, there's a little bit of discussion with the woman who owns the magic shop and Sarah about using natural forces and being a natural witch and perhaps not calling so specifically on this sentience for power and working more with benign natural forces. I just googled the uh, Celtic deity of the sea and water and I got Mananyan Maklir. Yeah, that sounds right. Mananyan Maklir. I think I'm saying that right. Or if we're not, you can write to us and tell us how to pronounce it. Blame Wikipedia on that one. I don't know. <laughs> so that that kind of covers all of the the witchiness and the craft. These witches are super interesting, super powerful, definitely not feminist. <laughs> I will say, yeah, your analysis makes me want to rewatch that movie with a much more critical adult eye because uh, yeah. like you, I'm pretty sure I most watched it when I was a teenager in the 90s and I loved it then and never felt the need to go back. I didn't want my, my memories of it to be sullied, but... Now they have been well and good sullied and I want to get back in there. <laughs> like I said, I think it's totally fine to love problematic things when you can recognize the problems, accept them for what they are, and just know that nothing is going to be perfect. And I think it's really good to be able to go back and look critically at something like this that's beloved. I, it's definitely beloved to me. Yeah. And to be able to really get a little bit deeper on what's going on. So. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I look back, when I, as an adult, try to watch the things I loved as a kid, more often than not, I find that they are not as good as I remember. Darkwing Duck is not as good as I remember Darkwing Duck being, with the exception of Muppet Babies. Muppet Babies is charming as hell and really smart and really sweet. I still love Muppet Babies. I feel the same way about the Rugrats. Rugrats was clever. Do you think any of those Rugrats grew up to be witches? Phil and Lil would make really good witches. I think there might have been a Halloween episode where they were dressed as witches. So we've covered the Rugrats, Darkwing Duck. <laughs> Inadvertently. And the Muppet Babies, as well as the Ladies of the Craft. It's a 90s spectacular. <laughs> it was a 90s spectacular, yeah. Tell me about the vengeance that you're going you're gonna to bring today. 
I'm talking about the Marvel Comics spirit of vengeance. I am talking about Ghost Rider. You know, the flaming skull, motorcycle, leather jacket and chains, that Ghost Rider. What? Wait, wait, isn't Ghost Rider a dude? Usually, not always. Usually, I'm talking about a very specific Ghost Rider. So, you know, Ghost Rider has teamed up with Doctor Strange, who just had a big movie, Spider-Man, who's always popular, the Hulk. No spoiler review for Doctor Strange, go see it, it's great. But Ghost Rider itself is not a superhero so much as a spirit of vengeance, punishing those who commit sins against other people. Probably the most popular incarnation of Ghost Rider, the one I think you're thinking of, is Johnny Blaze, who was a motorcycle stuntman who sold his soul to the devil and was portrayed in two feature films by Nicolas Cage. The current Ghost Rider in both the comics and on television in ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is Robbie Reyes, a kid from East L.A. whose soul is bonded to that of his devil-worshipping uncle and his 66 Charger. Between those two in the comics, though, there was a young woman known simply as Alejandra, who is amazing as a spirit of vengeance, but got a lot of undue flack for it and disappeared from the comics after barely a year. First of all, does this Ghost Rider identify as female? Yes, Alejandra is a lady for sure. Her father was a human trafficker from America, and her mother was an unknown woman in Mexico. Her father sold her like he did with all of his illegitimate children, and she wound up being raised in a cult in Nicaragua by Adam. And when I say Adam, I mean biblical Adam, the first man, the dude who accidentally invented sin way, way back in the day by eating the apple or whatever. Yeah, he wanted to destroy all the sin in the world to make up for his mistake. And he saw the Ghost Rider as a tool he could use in that process. So Adam raised all the children in his cults to basically be perfect vessels for the spirit of vengeance. Alejandra was 18 years old when Adam convinced the current Ghost Rider at the time, Johnny Blaze, to relinquish his power, and it deemed her worthy of becoming the next vessel for that power. She still gives off the key visual signifiers of the Ghost Rider, but she makes it her own in the way only a badass lady can. The flames start to resemble a flowing mane of fiery hair, even though Alejandra herself has a tightly cropped pixie cut. Her leather jacket has more boob support, thankfully. She has a really great pauldron protecting her left shoulder in a way that I imagine every lady on the New York City subway would love to keep creepers off their backs. I want one. But let me let me just get this straight. So Alejandra, mm-hmm. born to a guy who sells her to Biblical Adam, and Biblical Adam is on a quest to basically use a bunch of orphans or people that he has some sort of influence over into doing his ultimate plan of ridding the world of sin? Well, all his entire plan is just rid the world of sin. He only sees the Ghost Rider as like the tool to do it, but he can't control who gets that power. So he takes all these orphans, these unwanted kids, and basically like puts them through a lifelong military academy almost. Like they never leave the temple that they are raised in. What a jerk! Yeah, and like all they know is Catholic religion. All they know is that sin is bad. They don't know what the outside world looks or feels like. They don't know what people are doing out there. They don't know why people sin aside from the devil encourages them to. And so they all only have in their head that sin is bad, it needs to be destroyed, and that one of them will be the one to do it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Adam really needs to take a step back and do a little soul searching because it sounds like he's doing a lot more harm than good by making an anti-sin militia. Mm-hmm. It's not relevant, but Adam no, it's like super a- relevant because Adam's kind of 
horrible. He's kind of horrible. He should definitely maybe stop the anti-sin militia and like start looking at himself. Yeah, this is this is part of the bummer of doing a character who has only appeared in comics and not movies and television when we're doing a podcast is that I can't insert sound bites here, but I will post on the Tumblr and Twitter there's a really great exchange when Alejandra figures out what Adam's whole plan has been all along and that he wants to wipe sin from humanity. She says, I know you raised me, Adam, and I'd love to say something really profound here. But damn, Dad, you can kiss my flammable skeleton ass. And that's her first big badass woman in charge moment. Basically burning the heck out of her adopted father, who is literally the first man and inventor of sin. Yeah, she sounds great. But let's move on to the next law, which is practices magic. Tell me about the magic that Alejandra practices. Not only does Alejandra use magic powers as the ghostwriter, she uses the powers in ways that the previous ghostwriter, Johnny Blaze, had never even dreamed of. When people think of ghostwriter, they think of Johnny Blaze as he's the longest running character. Johnny Blaze could never open his mouth and spit out a cloud of locusts. Okay, Johnny Blaze could never collapse his flaming motorcycle into a single hand grip and then extend that into a flaming scythe. Johnny Blaze could never control the clouds and summon chain lightning. My favorite application of Alejandra's powers as Ghost Rider, at one point she and Johnny and I think Hawkeye from the Avengers even are being attacked by two zombie cyborgs on motorcycles and they are on a collision course with a bullet train and Alejandra jumps on top of the bullet train and transforms it into a flaming skull bullet train under her command. There's a giant flaming skull train of vengeance. It's gorgeous. And you know, in addition to those new powers, Alejandra also has a lot of the same powers as other ghost riders. She's got the flaming motorcycle. She can summon and command at will. She controls hellfire and chains. She has a penance stare that can immobilize her enemies and make them feel the pain of anybody they have wronged. And she has generally enhanced strength, durability, and is nigh invulnerable. You know, standard superhero junk. Yeah, I want to be able to commute on the flaming bullet skull train of vengeance. It's pretty badass. I bet it would get into the city really fast. It would never be held up. Yeah, good luck holding that up at a bridge. Like, oh, here comes a giant flaming skull. Everybody get, get out, out the, the way. way. All right, so I feel like we've started to touch on this a little bit, and I'm kind of scared about what you're going to say. Tell me about how Alejandra practices feminism. Does she? So probably the most feminist action Alejandra takes is accepting the spirit of vengeance itself. So Adam calls in a specialist called the Seeker to review all of his children and determine which one should become the Ghost Rider to purge the world of sin. Because Adam obviously is a bad judge of that. Uh, so the Seeker walks along this lineup of all these cult members who have been training literally their whole lives for this. They've never been outside the church. They've never seen the world. They've only trained to become Ghost Rider. There are big tattooed guys and there are buff dudes with massive muscles. And the Seeker touches the chains to each of them to see if the spirit chooses them. And nothing happens. And the Seeker is very disappointed and just keeps walking along and making a speech to sort of belittle the people. And he walks right past Alejandra, barely even noticing she's in the lineup at all. Insistent that she be given just as much an opportunity as anybody else, Alejandra grabs the chains from the Seeker's hand and it instantly catches fire with the flames spreading across her skin and transforming her clothes. And she's in agony because her body's on fire and the Seeker recognizes, oh, she's got the rage in her. She's got the vengeance in her. This is happening. And so he says, quickly, 
what is your name? You need to be grounded as this happens. What is your name? And she's like, Alejandra. Oh my God, make it stop. Alejandra. And he's like, say it again. Who are you? And she's like, Alejandra. And that's kind of the moment that she becomes Ghost Rider in that moment. And he hands her the weapon and he says, go, go do good, go punish evil. But more importantly, she wasn't going to just let him pass her by. She was like, I deserve as much of a shot at this as anybody else. You don't get to judge me. I am here. That gives me the chills, especially after talking about the basically anti-feminist ladies of the craft, like hearing about Alejandra not letting this opportunity pass her by because she's being looked over because she's a lady and just taking that option. I mean, there are other ladies in the lineup, but they are more domineering. They are clearly, they they have more obvious muscles. They have more obvious poise. Alejandra is like she just turned 18 as this is happening, basically. And she's still pretty small. Like she looks confident and tough, but she's much smaller than everybody else. She doesn't have the defined muscle structure on her arms like some of the other people do. And she's got this tight little pixie cut. So she's kind of like not even noticeable in the crowd. And I would argue that makes her even more feminist because often in your traditional patriarchal thinking, there is a tendency to belittle or demonize more traditionally feminine things, more traditionally feminine appearances. And so for her to be drawn that way, but still be capable of all of this great power and have this inside of her, I would say actually makes her even more feminist and is even more interesting as a feminist character. Yeah, I think it helped make Alejandra really relatable and really likable. If she had been a tall, leggy blonde with like broad shoulders, while it might have sold more comics, it wouldn't have been interesting. It wouldn't have said anything important, I think. Yeah. It would have just been, hey, here's an attractive lady who can set you on fire. There are better ways to solve that problem. Okay, so... We talked about how Alejandra demonstrates feminism, which it sounds like she does, and that makes me feel really good inside. It makes me burn with the spirit of vengeance. Tell me about whether or not Alejandra was persecuted and misunderstood. Oh, Definitely she was and still is, unfortunately. Frequently throughout the series, which only lasted nine issues, so not even a year in the comics, frequently people would question her ability to perform as Ghost Rider, largely because on one of her very first quests, Adam basically tricks her and takes command of her magical power as Ghost Rider and sets her off as sort of a sin bomb and purges all of the sin in Nicaragua. It's this massive explosion that can be seen from space. It doesn't destroy houses or people, but all of the people there are kind of just shallow husks. They walk around and they eat and they live their lives, but they have no emotion. They have no drive. They're very clearly just kind of husks of people. When the Avengers hear about this, Hawkeye actually shoots her with an enchanted arrow to paralyze her and cut off her powers. No questions asked. As far as he's concerned, she's a bad guy and needs to be brought to justice. And she never has a chance to explain what happened or her quest to right what went wrong and save all of those people because she feels really guilty about this. She had those powers used against her will on pretty much her second day on the job when she's fighting alongside the Red Hulk and Venom to fight literal demons from hell. The two of them agree that maybe the Ghost Rider made a mistake and that, in their opinion, Alejandra was clearly unqualified for the responsibility. And this is crazy 
when you think about the history of comic book superheroes, because so many of them really screw up in huge ways, especially that early in their careers. Alejandra had been Ghost Rider for a day when the whole Nicaragua thing went down. At this point in his career, Spider-Man was still doing flips on late night talk shows to make a few bucks and letting a robber murder his Uncle Ben. Spoilers for literally every Spider-Man movie and TV show. Hawkeye was an actual bad guy before joining the Avengers. Rogue was a villain before joining the X-Men and then eventually the Avengers as well. At this point in his career, Batman was still carrying a gun, which is something nowadays we think is inconceivable. Alejandro was being used by a bad guy, possibly the original bad guy, and has been trying to make up for it ever since, and no one gives her a chance to prove herself. Wow. Well, I think that brings us to our, our last law of witchiness. Is Alejandra bonded to a sentience? And I think I know the answer to that one. Yeah, definitely. This is the easiest time I've had answering this question so far in this podcast. Alejandra is 100% bonded to a sentience. That sentience has a name. That sentience is the demon Zarathos, the spirit of vengeance who transforms its host into Ghost Rider. Pretty much every Ghost Rider in the comics and movies has been bonded to this specific demon, Zarathos. Zarathos was originally a servant of heaven, but he became corrupted by the world and turned evil, so he's a heavenly force that found a home in hell. He feasts on sin and compels his vessels to seek out the people that commit evil and make them suffer. Unlike the other ghost riders who usually sell their soul to the devil for one reason or another and have Zarathos thrust upon them, Alejandra trained her entire young adult life specifically to use Zarathos' influence. She knows exactly what she's getting into, which is why she's more comfortable using the full breadth of his powers and reality-altering magic from day one, while other ghost riders start out just punching things harder, and eventually learn to spit fire or whatever. Literally, her first day on the job, she just opens her mouth and locusts come out. And people are like, whoa, I didn't know Ghost Riders could do that. And she's like, yeah, I studied. Word. Study really helps, apparently. It does. It makes you so much better when bad guys aren't controlling you against your will. <laughs> I mean, if the Avengers can forgive Scarlet Witch, who like basically committed a, an act of mass extinction against an entire race of the planet when she depowered all the mutants. If they can forgive her, why can't they give Ghost Rider a chance for removing the sin from a country? There are fewer people in Nicaragua than there were mutants in the world who lost their powers and possibly died because of Scarlet Witch. I will also say that they totally forgave the Dark Phoenix who, spoilers, eats a planet and commits genocide literal genocide she, she ate a planet she eats a planet and kills an entire planet of living beings and later on when dark phoenix comes back and like jean's like hey i'm not dead anymore because that's what happens in x-men a lot of the time hey i'm not dead anymore they're like oh it's jean no big deal you know the silver surfer led galactus to how many planets for him to eat and the fantastic four are like hey cool hang out with a silver surfer the Hulk is like, hey, cool, hang out with me, Silver Surfer. Doctor Strange is like, hey, cool, hang out with me, Silver Surfer. Granted, Silver Surfer feels guilty for all this, and he tries to correct his wrongs. But they give him a chance to do it! They never do this with Alejandra. They never give her a chance. <sighs> and she eventually does. She eventually does go into hell, find these souls, and save the day. She tries several times to do this. Like her main mission after that happens is I need to get to hell. And I need to save these souls because that was my mistake. 
and I want to make up for it. In the process of saving those souls, she is betrayed by Johnny Blaze, who was the previous ghostwriter who's been kind of mentoring her through the whole process. He takes a contract he made with the devil in the Marvel Universe, Mephisto. He turns it into a bullet and he shoots Alejandra with it to remove the Ghost Rider from her. They both fall into the flames of hell and the Ghost Rider, free from Alejandra, jumps back into Johnny Blaze and he pulls her out and they come back to Earth. Johnny is Ghost Rider again. Alejandra has a little bit of Zerothus's magic in her, but is completely scarred and burned. And she is now some unknown, possibly evil character who's like, I'm going to wander the Earth and purge sin. And Johnny Blaze you are one of the people I'm going to take vengeance against. And that was the final issue of her run of Ghost Rider, and we have not seen her since. You know what? I feel like it's a totally worthwhile vengeance-seeking activity to go after Johnny Blaze at that point. If, and I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, if she was part of my coven and I heard that happen to her, I'd be like, listen, you do what you need to do, and we're going to be back here casting some extra, you know, curses and stuff to help you along the way because everything that you just experienced is effed up. When Johnny Blaze shoots her with that magic bullet he made, this is moments after Alejandra grew to a half mile in height and literally ripped the devil's heart out of his chest. Metal. I think maybe he was just jealous of her. Probably. I think maybe he was just like feeling emasculated by how much better a ghostwriter she was. Totally emasculated. The fact that more people aren't furious about this storyline, that drives me crazy because she was amazing. And people don't care. It's just like you said about wanting to watch the craft now that I've explained how it's a little bit terrible. Hearing about how awesome Alejandra is makes me want to read this run of Ghost Rider. And I've never really been interested in Ghost Rider before. And now I feel like I owe it to Alejandra, who's been through so much, to read her story so that I can be like, yeah, Alejandra. She does so much in such a short period of time, and she is so underserved both in storytelling and by the other characters in Marvel Comics and by the editorial team at Marvel who were like, you know what, cancel this book and never talk about the character again. So let's move on to the next segment. Yeah, let's do the fun part of the show now. Let's stop being <laughs> such a bummer. The craft is bad. Marvel Comics is bad. <laughs> let's move on. Everything's bad. Everything's bad. This is such a downer for Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Everything's terrible. Who, Derek, are you going to invite into your coven? Well, obviously the ladies in the craft are terrible. Now I now I know that they're terrible. I'm not going to invite them. And Alejandra is amazing. She's absolutely got an inferiority complex going on because of all the stuff around her. Right. But she's great. She deserves a second chance. And I will happily give her that second chance. Alejandra, come join my coven. We will be totally chill. We have snacks. We won't judge you. Please give us a chance. I am also going to extend my invite to Alejandra and say, listen, Alejandra, come join my coven because we understand vengeance. We're not afraid of throwing some curses. We're not the kind of witches that are just going to sit on our butt and practice all kinds of white light and bunnies unless they're demon bunnies because sometimes you need demon bunnies. I am 100% behind her campaign for vengeance. I feel like Alejandra would be a fantastic addition to my coven. That was the easiest coven recruitment we've ever had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 100%. Definitely Alejandra. Sorry, ladies of the craft. You just are problematic in so many ways. 
You know where I think the ladies of the craft might fit in? Tell me. I think they would be delightful at our very own witchy nightclub, the Cauldron Cabaret. Yeah, I think that the ladies of the craft would be great at the Cauldron Cabaret. Yeah. I think they would really get along with the Sandersons. Mm-hmm. They would swap stories, I'm sure. The Sandersons would be very impressed by their ability to make themselves pretty and make men want them. Exactly. And the ladies from the craft would be very impressed by the way the Sandersons abused young children to make themselves happier. Yeah. Yeah, they would get along really, really well. Mm -hmm. And probably cause a lot of mayhem, but that's fine. Yeah. I feel like, though, the ladies from the craft would have been very mean to Sabrina the Teenage Witch in high school, so maybe not hanging out with the Spellmans as much. Mm, no, probably not. But you know what? It's fine, because the Spellmans are the ones in charge of the free snacks, and they mm -hmm. probably would have to play nice at least a little bit if they want a can of Popsy. Man, that Popsy is... It's something. it's something. There's just enough caffeine to keep you going, but not enough to really, like, bug you out. Right. That's the beauty of Popsy. That's the beauty of Popsy. And I think that Alejandra would be really interested to hang out with Zatanna. They probably have a lot to discuss. My concern with Alejandra at the Cauldron Cabaret is that, once again, she's never really seen the outside world. She spent the first 18 years of her life in a church, basically, and then the following few months biking around North America, South America, fighting bad guys, purging sin, and basically jumping in and out of hell. She had a brief adventure in Las Vegas, but Las Vegas was overrun by demons at the time, so she didn't really get to go to the casinos or the clubs. So I'd be very curious to see how she would interact with the cabaret, full well knowing that magic is happening all around her and that none of it is anything she needs to fight. She can, she can just sort of relax, let her limited hair down, and kind of just enjoy the sisterhood. I think, I think that that would be good for her. I think it would be cathartic, much in the way the... Um Chosen One support group is cathartic for Hermione and Satana. Yeah. I think Hermione would be a really good influence on the ladies of the craft because she would encourage them to do a lot more research. And I think that that could only be helpful for them. She would be able to point them to a couple of really important books on second and third wave feminism. I can see Hermione going right up to Sarah and being like, here's my copy of The Second Sex. Read this and we'll discuss later. Yeah, that is a craft sequel I would pay to see. <laughs> the ladies of the craft get in touch with their inner female. Yeah. That sounds like a much more interesting story to me. Yeah. A lot of what we discussed today are a lot of the fears that we have as a culture about what happens when women get power, specifically when women abuse power. And the craft ladies are a perfect example of what our patriarchal fears are when it comes to women who have and abuse power. And I think that vengeance is one of those things that is often denied to women. It's something that women aren't supposed to want. And should they pursue vengeance, they're going to have to deal with serious consequences like the ladies of the craft do. But what I find really refreshing is that Alejandra is, in fact, a spirit of vengeance or is bonded to a spirit of vengeance and actually gets to achieve her aims, which are to right the wrongs that she had in the beginning of her career as a ghostwriter and meet out the vengeance that she's supposed to do. Granted, you know, there's the bit at the end with Johnny Blaze and everything's terrible because God, Marvel, why? 
But I think that it's really interesting to see really traditional portrayal of witches and witchcraft kind of collapse under the weight of what women with power means. And a kind of unorthodox portrayal of a witch in pop culture, really embracing that and taking that to a new level. Yeah, so the fear amongst men is that when women have power, they'll get back at us for all the bad stuff we've done. Yeah, so often the the portrayal of witches in folklore and in pop culture is that when women decide to go down that route and mete out that vengeance, they're going to get their comeuppance because women aren't supposed to do that. We don't, we're afraid of women doing that vengeance and thus the story becomes a cautionary tale of if you are to pursue this vengeance, if you're going to gain all of this power that is quote unquote not rightfully yours, you're going to end up with some heavy consequences. This kind of makes me think there's a comic coming out right now that I'm really enjoying called Black. And the premise there is what if superpowers were real? but only black people got them. Hmm. And you see the same sort of relationship there between Caucasians and African Americans as you do here between men and women of because the world is a horrible place and these things still happen, Caucasians are still racist and they still hold down African Americans in a really unfortunate way. And some of them have superpowers. And the fear is that they will take revenge against the white man which is not entirely unjustified. We are recording this prior to the election, so hopefully this discussion is going to be less relevant depending on the election outcome, I guess. It it would be nice to think these things will ever be less relevant. It would be. You know what? It's a utopia. It's a utopia just like the Cauldron Cabaret you can hang out in where there's not racism and there's not misogyny and everything is magic and you can have a free Milky Woo whenever you want. The Cauldron Cabaret is my new happy place. Mm -hmm. That's where I go when I'm feeling down is the Cauldron Cabaret. (laughs) This podcast is healing, I think. It's healing for me. That's something to be grateful for, right? That sounds like a good place to wrap things up. I'm thankful for the Cauldron Cabaret. Thankful for the Cauldron Cabaret. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode of Which Witch is Witch. Now that you heard what we have to say, what do you think? Who would you invite into your coven? Let us know at witchwitchcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at witchwitchcast. That's W-H-I-C-H W-I-T-C-H-C-A-S-T We'll be back again on December 8th to talk about more witches and more acts for our cauldron cabaret. Until then, keep that spirit of vengeance burning. <laughs>